Hello traders, analysts, and other followers of the energy industry. My name is Corey Stewart and I'm a senior analyst with Refinitiv, your go-to partner for energy analysis and data. As always, I'm here with Jim Mitchell, Refinitiv's head of America's oil analysts. Recently, there have been some increased risks to global economic growth on top of the damage that has already been done by the global coronavirus shutdown, which has already had a significant impact. For perspective, the Great Recession resulted in negative 0.07% GDP growth in 2009, while the April IMF forecast for 2020 global growth was negative 3.0%, uh, with the revision lower coming at the end of this month. Recently, World Bank issued a 2020 global forecast of a 5% global contraction. There are always risks to growth, but much of what we will cover today has to do with increased saber rattling between US and China and how this relationship could affect energy markets in the Western Hemisphere. In January, the two countries signed a phase one agreement, but between rhetoric about the pandemic, disagreements over Hong Kong, and currency issues, the China-US saga has the potential to prolong pain even as the world starts to emerge from COVID. So Jim, what are your observations here? So the demand impact from the pandemic dwarfed everything else in the energy space. Now that demand is starting to come back, some of these other topics are starting to resurface. Today we explore the growing growing rhetoric between the U.S. and China's impact on oil. So the astute observer will look beyond the smokescreen that is this virus blame game. Much bigger issues are brewing. Human rights issues in Hong Kong and Minneapolis. Xi Jinping's handling of Hong Kong in general. Trump is five months from an election and clearly in campaign mode. And arguably the most important is the race to 5G and cybersecurity. The trigger that started the trade war almost exactly two, year, two years ago now is back. The U.S. Justice Department in late February indicted Huawei on a 16-count conspiracy to violate the RICO Act. The RICO Act. That's what they use to go after organized crime. Add to that China's One Belt, One Road initiative that is intended to strengthen China's supply chain. This is this also has the additional effect of eroding U.S. soft power around the world. This is only the tip of a very complex iceberg. Net effect is some decoupling of the relationship between the U.S. and China, and that has repercussions. China has adopted what is being termed wolf warrior diplomacy. This is the Chinese version of make China great again. The net effect being China may start to target U.S. allies. Well, Jim, who was a bigger ally than Canada? No doubt about that. Canada's biggest, biggest exposure is their canola and beef exports to China, and those feathers have already been ruffled. Oil exports are saying a little bit something different. Prior to the start of the trade war in 2018, shipments, shipments to China were sporadic, more opportunistic in nature. Starting in the spring of 2018 and into the summer, there was consistently two Panamaxes loaded from Kinder Morgan's dock at Westridge in Vancouver going to China. Appears they like the cold lake grade of Canadian crude. There was even an Aframax loaded out of Whiffenhead on the east side of Canada in April of 2018. But December of 2018 some saw the founder's daughter of Huawei, who was the CFO, arrested in Canada. 
And that stopped that budding relationship dead in its tracks for a while. Spring of 2019 saw a Panamax a month load from Westridge. May of 2020 saw a possible turnup in the relationship with four Panamaxes loading from Westridge and two Aframaxes loaded out of Whiffenhead. More volume in one month than all 2019 combined. Yet to be seen what this actually means, but it doesn't look like China is targeting Canada's oil industry. So could Canada benefit from the Belt and Road Initiative? It's possible, but unlikely. Any development would likely be on the west side of Canada. Kinder Morgan and others have been trying to build out Vancouver's port and build a bigger port for the northern British Columbia in Kitimat, all of which have been stifled by the locals. So from an energy perspective, China's only real influence is a small buyer and their purchases are anemic compared to the purchases in the U.S. So what about the U.S. oil market? So shipments of ANS from Alaska to China are sporadic. April 2020 saw one Aframax and May saw two Aframax move from Valdez to China. And this is pretty typical. A couple movements, April, May, and then nothing until November, December, January. Will China interject in Alaska? Possible. But again, unlikely, Hill Corp will make big moves to ship ANS to China. They are not a rock-the-boat kind of company. They are much more focused on getting approvals for their Liberty platform in the Beaufort Sea. From a refined products perspective, the U.S. West Coast is short. China has been a supplier in the past. However, this makes the trade deficit even worse as China is selling into the U.S., this doesn't appear to have much, if any, appeal to either side and will continue to be anemic. Headed to the broader U.S. As many of you know, the Phase 1 trade deal signed in January of this year is multifaceted and extends way beyond energy. The energy portion looks like this. China has agreed to buy $52.4 billion in energy purchases over the next two years. For some perspective, they bought a touch over $9 billion in 2017. There are some parameters of $18.5 billion in 2020 and $33.9 billion in 2021. $18.5 billion, if one just looks at crude at $39 a barrel, is about 39.5 million barrels a month. They bought nothing in Jan and Feb. May was a record month for oil purchases from China, and they were about halfway to that 39.5 million barrel goal. So clearly this isn't going to happen anytime soon and will likely be a point of discussion, if not contention, as the rhetoric gets more sour. Will the energy goal be sacrificed for agriculture or intellectual property concessions or get caught in the Huawei debacle? I actually hope it does. China doesn't need to buy oil from the U.S. They have plenty of suppliers and developing new ones even closer to home. The U.S. energy industry has done very well with minor inputs from China. If sacrificing the phase one energy goals means this political rhetoric gets tapped down a bit, have at it. You know, once again, I'm hearing that Mexico is in a unique position. Yeah, Mexico is in a very unique position in this growing conflict. Both China and the U.S. want to strengthen ties for much the same reasons. Both the U.S. and China will benefit by doing so, and this could be the element of this tense, tense relationship that continues to work in spite of the political rhetoric. 
China is already Mexico's second biggest trading partner. The motivation here is very straightforward. China needs more and more secure access to oil, and they want more and better inroads, literally, into the U.S. markets. If there ever was a country tailor-made for China's Belt and Road Initiative, it's Mexico. The Belt and Road Initiative being China's lending money and construction expertise to build infrastructure and extend China's influence around the world. So ties with Mexico were strained under the previous Mexican administration. President Obrador's staff almost immediately started fixing that, and in July of 2019, Mexico and China laid out a five-year plan for mutual growth within Mexico. This, of course, is a multifaceted agreement, and I'll just stick to energy. Mexico desperately needs new and upgraded energy infrastructure, pipelines, tank farms, refineries, as well as oil production equipment. I suspect the main focus will be uh, two, two locations. One is the Zama Oil Discovery, and the other is Selena Cruz. I talked about the Zama Discovery in the last two episodes. I'll focus on Selena Cruz today. Selena Cruz port on the southern Pacific side of Mexico has three pipelines that service this port. One is an oil-related pipeline, one is natural gas, and one is refined products. This is the perfect spot for development as the oil pipeline is not very big. Expanding this pipe and port would allow Mexico to export VLCC-sized cargoes at a more cost-efficient rate than their heavy oil competitor in Venezuela. Currently, this port only supports Panamax-sized ships and serves as a regional distribution point along Mexico's Pacific coast, with Long Beach being the furthest point north. There's also a pretty substantial manufacturing piece to this puzzle. These two countries have been trading partners for decades, so why the sudden interest in expanding relations? Well, reforms by President Obrador have improved commercial law, labor law, and even though he is steadfast in making Pemex great again, he has shown a great respect for existing contracts. Also, Mexico could be China's hub in the Americas with spokes to more than 40 of China's trade deals in the Americas. The wolf warrior diplomacy may apply to other commodities, but next to social stability, energy stability in China is the next most important issue. Doesn't look like they have any intention of hostile actions towards North or South America. So speaking of South America, I understand you see things a little bit different down there. Uh, yes, that's absolutely right. And let's first talk to talk and look, look to Brazil. <clears throat> so Brazil is a net exporter of goods. In 2018, a third of Brazil's 242 billion exports were attributable to petroleum, iron ore, and soybeans. The soybean portion was over $33 billion. Just over 82% of Brazilian soybean exports went to China. 82%. With the U.S.-China trade war, Brazil saw an increased $10 billion of agricultural exports go to China, largely driven by increased soybean demand. Because, even though Brazil sends a large volume of soybeans to China already, historically the U.S. has been China's largest supplier of the commodity. The phase one trade deal change this. So as China will divert agricultural purchases back to the U.S., Brazil will again serve markets that the U.S. will pull pull supply from. But hey, about oil, right? Okay, so 
Phase one deal included a pledge by China, like Jim covered, to buy an additional 200 billion in goods over the next two years relative to a 27 baseline, 2017 baseline, uh, with 50, 52 billion of that energy. So focus just on crude, US to China volume, uh, Jim already covered, and you know, the 2020 volume should be more, but they're they're lagging behind on that. Well, as of April, the actual purchases, of course, of U.S. goods by China is only about half of what they should be. And when looking at energy, the numbers are just they're de minimis. Brazilian crude oil qualities obviously differ from those flowing from the U.S. You can see that reflected in Brazilian crude oil trade, where the country routinely swaps its crude for grades it can run in its less complex refineries. Where Brazilian oil has certainly benefited from this conflict. Here's a quick rundown. 2017, Brazilian crude exports averaged just over 1 million barrels per day. 2018, 1.1, 2019, 1.3. And if you recall our previous podcast, where Brazil had intended to reduce production, demand for crude exports has caused the country, and specifically its state-run oil company, Petrobras, to sustain and increase production. What's interesting, however, is where these exports are going. In 2017, 28% of Brazilian crude exports went directly to China. The trade war started in February 2018, 50% of Brazilian crude exports went directly to China in that particular month. And since, on average, about 48-49% of Brazilian crude exports make their way directly to China. I say directly because this doesn't count, for example, the volumes that are sent to Uruguay and then are later re-exported. We cover that in recent podcasts. I don't really see this changing for the Brazilians. They have a good customer in China, and if U.S.-China relations sour again, Brazil will continue to supply crude there, as they are doing now. And with a trade war cut global trade, the coronavirus has left no economic stone unturned, such that any recovery from the virus, despite any further U.S.-China conflict, will be good for Brazilian energy. So maybe not U.S. trade related, but I know there's got to be something going on in Venezuela. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the U.S. just keeps tightening the screws. So last week I shared that the U.S. Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Control, better known as OFAC, sanctioned four tankers and their operating companies for transporting Venezuelan crude. This included two VLCCs, one Suez Max and one Afromax, and the crude loaded ultimately made its way to China. <clears throat> now, operations here meant that some ship-to-ship transfers happened, and OFAC hasn't gone on to sanction any of the ships making the second leg of the journey post-STS. However, I know that some people listening here don't completely understand the gravity of an OFAC sanction. When a ship and its operating company are sanctioned, that company ends up on the U.S. Specially Designated Nationals, or SDN, list. Being there means that the ship can't call on U.S. ports. Okay, that's maybe no problem. There are a lot of flows that don't involve the U.S., but that's not all. The company also cannot conduct business in U.S. dollars. That's certainly a much bigger deal in our industry. And finally, any company 50% or more owned by a company on the SDN is also subject to the same degree of sanctions. Given the severity of these sanctions and OFAC's willingness to implement them, it's no wonder why multiple vessels set to transport Venezuelan crude have either turned around or were left Venezuelan waters unladen. And as I understand it, there's a significant number of vessels currently carrying Venezuelan crude that are idling at sea. Recent export data have shown that Venezuelan crude oil exports are well below 500,000 barrels per day. Now, without vessels to transport the crude out, the country can expect further declines in its export volumes. 
Ooh. What else you got going on in South America? Well, looking again to the knock-on effects of changes in the U.S.-China relationship, most really are just non-energy related, and I, I won't dig far too far into those. I mean, the most significant, however, the Argentinian soybean meal exports. And, of course, like you mentioned, Chinese influence in the region. <clears throat> um, and China shipped its soybean supply away from the U.S., it turned, as I spoke about earlier, largely to Brazil. To some degree, Argentina benefited as well. But it was really late last year when China started considering ramping up its soybean meal, not just soybeans, imports from China. Or excuse me, from Argentina. Argentina is actually the world's largest exporter of soybean meal, <clears throat> and though China has historically preferred to import rice soybeans over the meal, the trade conflict has turned this somewhat on its head. And <clears throat> excuse me, going into depth about Chinese South American relations, I mean it's out of the scope of this podcast, but let's sum it up as this. The relationship used to be very transactional. Now China has ingrained itself in South America through infrastructure projects and financial support, and a new or continued trade war between the US and China may force the region to evaluate which superpower to support. Also hanging over us is the not too distant future, the US presidential election which has historically been a concern for all of Latin America. On the oil front, I've discussed production in Guyana before, but where lysa production should reach 120,000 barrels per day this month, the long-term plan is for Guyana to produce 750,000 barrels per day by 2025. But as a former boss of mine would say, there's plenty of oil out there and the problems are all above the ground. So in both Guyana and neighboring Suriname, which has also made an appearance on our podcast, there's some political tensions surrounding energy. The short description, some in governments there want to see a larger take than what's in current production sharing agreements. Something I'll continue to watch. So Jim, what are your thoughts for next week? The political rhetoric between the U.S. and China is ramping up as the two economic superpowers start to decouple their respective economies from each other. Other commodities, technology, and likely tourism will see this wolf warrior diplomacy from China. The oil space will see something more like wolf pup diplomacy. Next week, Corey and I will talk about what's for sale and what is ripe for China's Belt and Road Initiative in the Americas. Sounds like fun. Thanks, everyone, and have a great week. 